0: Scripture this evening comes from the first, first, uh, first Peter chapter three, verses fourteen through sixteen. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror; neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whatever ye speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Jesus Christ.
1: There's a phrase in Latin, memento mori, that means remember death. And I've heard a story associated with this where a Roman general, when he has victory parades to celebrate successful conquests and battles, would have a slave whisper this phrase in his ear to kind of keep him humble. Even in the midst of great celebration of his achievement, he wanted to make sure that he always kept a perspective on the fact that this glory is fleeting, and he can't get so puffed up that he doesn't focus on what's coming for him. Uh, When I looked up this story to get the finer details to tell you it tonight, I found that the original source for this story was sermons and writings from an early church father, which means that it's one of the earliest preacher stories and is probably not true. (laughs) Uh, But it was still kind of cool. It was nice to me to know that it's been something that Christians have needed to hear for a long time, that death is inevitable and certainly coming for all of us. We are all going to die if the Lord doesn't come before our time. But for Christians, that has a different meaning than that of the fictitious Roman general. Because for us, that's not a sense of dread or a humbling thing, really, so much as it is a call of hope. Eventually, we will all get to go home to our Lord. And Christians should be definitively the most hopeful people here in this world. When somebody who's lost, just a a normal person in the world, has negative circumstances come into their life, they're suffering because of something that's going on, sometimes there's not really a light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, you can get a serious injury, a, a bad diagnosis, you can have circumstances and turmoil and the world spin up, things that just aren't going to improve within your lifetime. And the fact that we're all going to die isn't really a good thing at the end of it all. But for a Christian, there's nothing more hopeful than the idea that eventually I'm going to go home and spend eternity with my God in heaven. And that's something that was very important for Peter's audience in the first century when he wrote the book of First Peter. Because those first century Christians were facing harsh, harsh persecution and they were suffering for their faith. In 1 Peter chapter 3, which we'll get to, Peter talks about how we as Christians are supposed to be able to have hope in the face of suffering and the face of death. And the ways that we can have hope are threefold. Don't fear, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, and be baptized into the power of his resurrection. Because that's the only power that ultimately can save us from suffering and from death. Christians should be the most hopeful people, and the first way that we can be most hopeful is to not fear. In First Peter chapter 3, verse 13, it reads, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Peter's first line here, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what of good, I think, seems like kind of a tongue-in-cheek comment from Peter. Because like I just said, his audience was persecuted and suffering Christians in the first century. So if Peter said, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good, all, the, all these people in that initial reading could probably come up with a list of people that did want to harm them because of their faith and because they were Christians. Despite that, though, this point still stands, and it seems similar to a point that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, where he says that we should not fear the one that can destroy the body and not the soul, but rather the one that can destroy the body and the soul by casting the soul into hell. If we are all good people, generally, it it follows that people will like us. I mean, if you're honest, you're a hard worker, you're gracious and kind to people that you meet, generally, I I think you'll be pretty popular with most around you. But even when you're not, the worst thing that can happen to you is only bodily. There's only bodily suffering that can come upon us because as long as we're zealous for what is good and we're focusing on being in the right path, then God's got us covered and our soul, which is eternal, our soul, which lives on even after death, is certainly going to be okay. Who is there to harm us if we prove zealous for what is good? We have to keep an eternal perspective on suffering. Ultimately, since we all know we are all going to die, we all remember death, suffering here on earth can only last as long as we live. And that means that eventually everything's going to be okay. And in that perspective, who can harm us if we prove zealous for what is good? In the next verse, in verse 14, Peter says that even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Similar to the statement that Jesus makes in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, where he says that you're blessed if you're persecuted for righteousness sake. There's a caveat here, and I think it's important to make. He says that you're blessed if you suffer for the sake of righteousness. If we simply suffer in our life because of, The consequences of our actions, that's not a blessed thing. If you lie, cheat, steal, murder, you know, you're a terrible dude, then your life is miserable because of that. It's the consequences of your own actions. God's not blessing you for it. When we suffer, we have to make sure that the reason that we are suffering, the reason that our life is hard, is because we are following what God wants us to do, because we are living righteously. And then, in that case, we are blessed. In verse 17, it says, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. We don't want to suffer for doing what is wrong. We don't want our life to be full of reasons that the world should persecute us that are unrelated to the name of Jesus, just the consequences of our actions, like I said. And it's an important thing to note if we want the blessings that come from suffering for righteousness. The idea that suffering is a blessing seems kind of counterintuitive, though to just common sense and the general wisdom of you know people not within the church suffering and misfortune in your life is not a blessing it's it's everything but that I mean we, we look to avoid pain and suffering in our lives we make decisions with that specific intent to avoid our own pain and suffering but if it's a blessing then how can that be I mean what's the upside to pain and suffering well in in chapter 2, verse 21 of First Peter, he kind of gets into this, but the greater point that I want to illustrate is that when we suffer righteously, we are participating in the glory of Christ. Ultimately, Jesus' ministry reached a pinnacle when he died and was resurrected. The most important thing that he did was come to suffer on our behalf, was to come and suffer and die and be resurrected from the dead. And when we suffer righteously, we are following in his footsteps as he is our greatest example. So in chapter two, verse 21, it reads, "'For you have been called for this purpose, "'since Christ also suffered for you, "'leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, "'who committed no sin, "'nor was any deceit found in his mouth.'" Christ set an example in his suffering for us to follow of suffering perfectly. John went into great detail this morning about how Jesus suffered and the kind of pain that he endured and it was certainly great but despite the fact that Jesus endured great pain there was not an inch of sin, there was not an ounce of sin, there was nothing wrong with his conduct during that time and that's the example that he set for us. When we suffer here on earth our response should not be fear. We should not be afraid, we should not flee from it, we should not sin to avoid suffering. Rather, we should remember that in those times of suffering, we are following in the footsteps of Jesus. And living with a Christ-like example has an evangelistic purpose. Think about it this way. When you suffer and you're hopeful and you're living righteously in that time, people are seeing in you the most important part of the ministry of Jesus Christ. When you're suffering and you're righteous and your conduct is good, when your life is at its lowest point, when times are hard and you are living hopefully and you're visibly hopeful, people are seeing Jesus in you. When you endure hardship gracefully, when you're not defeated by it, when you're not uh, depressed. Things are not bad. Your, your attitude stays, stays positive. You stay hopeful. People are seeing the most important part of Christ's ministry in your life right then. And that is truly a blessing. And it's a way that we participate in the glory of Christ with our righteous suffering. We accomplish something with our suffering when we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, the same way that he accomplished something with his suffering in the first century. Another reason that we're blessed when we suffer is because suffering helps us to stop sinning and live more for the will of God. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, it reads, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. When we're suffering, it's easier to focus on better things. Right? We can think about the light that's at the end of the tunnel. When life is good and and there's nothing really going wrong here on earth, it's hard to keep a perspective on the better things that are to come because, you know, why worry about what's good? We're content with the circumstances that we have here and now. But when life gets hard. When things are difficult, when there's nothing really good going on here, how much easier is it for us to focus on heaven? And how much better heaven is going to be than what we're experiencing in that moment? And when we can draw our attention to heaven, we can focus on eternity, we can place our hope in eternity, instead of responding with fear and being defeated by our suffering and by our affliction, we can instead focus on doing the will of God and living for what He would have us to do. Because we're focusing on getting to heaven instead of being defeated by our present circumstances. So if we want to get to heaven, how should we live? We should live the way that God wants us to. Another way that suffering is a blessing for us if we're suffering righteously. We should look at suffering as not a, a time of, of misery that we should, be, we should be beaten down by, but rather as a time of refining our faith and refining our living so that we can better follow the will of God and refocus ourselves on doing the things that he wants us to do. Another way that we participate in the glory of Christ with our righteous suffering is seen in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. It says, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the re- revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Rejoicing when suffering comes is a whole new level of counterintuitive. I mean, we can understand that maybe we don't need to be totally defeated by bad circumstances here on earth, but Instead of responding with contentment or apathy, what Peter is saying is we need to respond with rejoicing because one of the ways that we're blessed when we suffer righteously is God is more present in our life at that point than at any other time. It says the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you in that moment. If the glory of Christ that you're participating in in your suffering is more present in your life, when you're down, isn't that cause for rejoicing rather than fear? Our response to suffering should not be to be fearful and defeated by it and and averse to righteous suffering by any means necessary, but rather should be to respond to that with rejoicing because we know that God is more present in our lives when we're at our lowest point than at any other time. The Spirit of God that resides in all Christians is more present in your life when you're at your lowest which means that those times of suffering, God is drawing closer to you and we can take that same opportunity to draw closer to him. Righteous suffering is our participation in the glory of Christ because we're following in his footsteps, being led by his example. We're given an opportunity to refine our will to more better focus on what it is that he would have us to do and how he would have us live. And God is more present in our lives in those moments than at any other time. Another point on, on suffering, the last, one of the last points that Peter makes in this epistle is in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 and 11, where, in which he writes, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's that first line that I want to focus on after you have suffered for a little while. Think about the circumstances of a first century Christian. We kind of were familiar, generally speaking, with the sufferings that they endured. When a Roman guard came to their door and knocked on it and said, renounce Jesus as your king and and worship Caesar as your Lord and God, and they refused to do that, what were some of the consequences for them? They were burned at the stake they were fed to animals. They were crucified. They were killed in all kinds of gruesome ways. If that was the fate that a first century Christian met, and surely some of them were in Peter's audience here, when does the suffering stop if it's only for a little while? When does the suffering end if it's only for a little while for these people? When they died. Sometimes suffering that we go through in our life is not going to end until our life ends as well. Only a little while is the period of time that we are alive here on earth in the scope of eternity. But it's entirely possible that that will be a grueling experience here on earth. But keeping a focus on the eternal perspective, the fact that our life is so infinitesimally short compared to the grand scheme of how long we are going to exist and the time that we're going to spend with God, our response to pain and suffering and even cruel death should not be fear, but should be hope because we have hope in the work that Jesus did and we have hope because we are children of God and we're going to be called to him eventually. Remember death, because that's ultimately where we're going, and for a Christian, that's a hopeful thing. It's not something that we should fear or feel defeated by. It's something that we can rest our hope in, because eventually, all of us will be able to go home to our Father in heaven. Even if that means that we have to suffer on the way. Our response to suffering as Christians should be hope. We should be the most hopeful people, definitively hopeful. People should see that about us, and our response to suffering should not be fear. The second way that we can have hope as Christians is to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. If, you, if I was to stop the sermon at the last point, it's all over right there. Any person can just live without fear. Where would we go if Christ was not our Lord when we die? I mean, suffering is only for a little while. Time is a a long thing. If I'm eventually going to die, then the earthly suffering will end, right? But without Jesus as my Lord, there's nothing for me to look forward to in the end. There's nothing hopeful about death for somebody whose Lord is not Jesus Christ, which is why this next part is so important. In verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 3, it reads, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart is the first line that Peter, reads, or that Peter writes. Jesus must be set apart in your heart for a higher purpose. He must be king of your life. Your, your purpose for living is to follow his will, is to be the kind of person that he wants you to be. To borrow a phrase, there needs to be a special place in your heart for Jesus and for doing his will because he is your Lord and master set apart for that purpose. And Peter gives this, this command here in, in the context of a discussion of suffering. Meaning that our response to suffering should not be fear, but rather it should be to grow closer to Christ, to submit ourselves further to Christ and to his will, and to make him all the more our Lord and Master, to serve him as our God. Suffering righteously without Christ is hopeless. If Jesus is not your Lord, then your situation is dire and there's not a future for you to look forward to. It's bleak because we don't get to heaven without Jesus. Christ must be your Lord, and the response to suffering can't simply be to not fear, it must be to rejoice and to exalt Jesus as your Lord. Integral setting Christ as Lord in your heart is being able to articulate why you are hopeful in death and suffering. Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. I've heard, surely, well-meaning brethren, teach this passage, and they'll say something along the lines of that we should regularly attend worship, and when our neighbors see us get ready and go somewhere every Sunday morning, week in and week out, they will see our behavior and they will ask us, uh, what are you doing on Sunday morning when you go with your family somewhere every week, and then you will be able to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Uh, And while that's certainly a well-meaning point, in an American suburb when you get up and get dressed and go somewhere every Sunday morning, everybody knows where you're going. You're going to church. And Peter's not writing about that kind of thing. What Peter's writing about is that his audience in their times of suffering should be so visibly hopeful, that should be so obvious that they are undefeated by the bad circumstances in their life, that people are going to ask them, why are you like this? Why are you still hopeful right now? Why are you unbeaten by the pain that you're experiencing? It's not about the mundane life of a Christian inspiring awe in people. It's about the, the, the representation of Christ's righteous suffering in our lives being shown to people and them being inspired to ask us why we are like that in those circumstances. Why are you so hopeful even though things are so bleak in your life. When we're at our lowest point, we need to be able to explain why we have hope in Jesus. In the worst times of your life, were you so committed to following Jesus that you were a ray of sunshine to those around you, even though things in your life were terrible? If somebody looked at you during the worst times in your life, would they be able to tell that you were a hopeful person because of what Jesus did for you? If you were put on the spot right now, could you tell me why you are one of the most hopeful people in the world because of what Jesus did to you, much less at your lowest point? We need to really think about that. If Christ is truly the Lord of our lives, if he really is who we've set our hope on, then we need to be able to properly explain to people why we are so hopeful and the way that we live should show them that hope, so much so that we don't even have to bring it up. They will ask us why we are so hopeful. That needs to be what we exemplify in our lives. We need to be pure and perfect in hope, so much so that people can see it, especially at our lowest points. In verse 16, it says, Keep a good conscience so that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, will be put to shame. Ultimately, at the end of everything, we're going to be vindicated if we keep a good conscience. We're going to win in the end because we know how the whole story ends. We've, we've read the scripture. We know that at the end, Jesus is going to come and victory is going to be his. If he's our king, if he's our master, if he's our God, then, and we're his people, then we win at the end. We'll be vindicated. Nobody, nobody's going to be able to take that away from us. Peter's wording here seems very specific. He says, keep a good conscience. He could have just written, you know, keep doing what you're doing, focus on doing good works, uh, you know, remember the things that we've taught you, something like that. But he very specifically says, keep a good conscience. And I think that there's a point that we can draw from this. Again, thinking about the circumstances of those in the first century, If a Roman knocks on your door and says, renounce Jesus as your God and and worship Caesar instead, a Christian at that time could have just feigned worship for Caesar and they would have avoided a lot of pain and suffering. They could have just bit their tongue, done what they were supposed to do, paid lip service to the pagan gods, and they would have avoided a lot of pain and suffering. But what Peter is saying is that your conscience should be so good, so clean, that that's not even in in the cards. It's not even possible for you to have chosen that because you're so focused on doing what's right. We need to have an unbroken will to do good, an unbroken will to keep ourselves from sin, and that will help us be vindicated in the end. If you're living your life and you're suffering for righteousness and you are just longing to sin, because it would, it's your out, it's your escape. I mean, if we just did this one thing, if I just drank with my friends, I would fit in better and my life would be so much easier. If, if, I, just, if I just lived this certain way, if I just indulged in this certain vice, I would be able to cope with, with being a Christian. It would be so much easier for me to handle this suffering. If that's the way that we're living, we're not keeping a good conscience and there's no vindication for us at the end. We have to keep a good conscience. We have to have an unbroken will to do what is right, to focus on not sinning. A first century Christian had to be willing to do what was right no matter the cost. And we have to do the same. We have to be willing to face any pain and suffering because we're trying to live righteously so that we can follow the example of our Lord and Savior. And part of living righteously is having a good conscience and an unbroken will to do what God wants us to do, no matter the circumstances, because we're hopeful and because we serve Christ our God. Christians should be the most hopeful people, and the way that they can be hopeful is to not fear and sanctify Christ as Lord in their hearts. But if the sermon ended there, then... Jesus is your Lord. You're serving him. The reason that you're suffering is because of him. What should you do in response to that? Well, Peter makes it very clear. If you want to have hope, if you want to be among the most hopeful people in the world, you need to be baptized. And that's what he says in these following verses here, winding up chapter 3. Starting in verse 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. If we really want to have hope, we have to accept Christ's sacrifice through baptism. Nobody else died for my sins, only Jesus, and he died once for all. Jesus died so that we all could be brought to God. And that's a source of hope for all of us because it means no matter what we face here in this life, no matter the suffering, no matter the pain, when we die, we go home. And it's time to be with God because of what Jesus did for us. Praise him for that. And that's why Christ must be our king and that's why our hope can be in him. It says that Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And Paul writes that Christ was the first fruits born of the dead, meaning that Christ has paved the way for us in the resurrection. We know that even though death is inevitable for all of us, we have hope in that death because we've seen that Christ was raised from the dead when he lived and died here as a man. We When we live and die here as men, we'll be able to die and be raised again to glory with our Father at the end. There's hope in that. But the only way that we have access to that power, the only way that we can have access to the power of Christ's resurrection is through baptism into his death, burial, and resurrection. The next thing that Peter talks about is a discussion of Noah and the ark, which probably seems a little bit out of place since Peter's been talking about uh, baptism and Christ's sacrifice and suffering. Why would he bring up Noah's ark here? Starting in verse 18, it reads, Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight, persons were brought safely through the water. There was an early Christian heresy where the people would say that the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament were separate people. That's been around for a long time. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with people who think a similar thing today. That God in the Old Testament was cruel and uh, merciless and wanted to punish his people. He was a wrathful God. And the God of the New Testament is gracious and kind and merciful and loving and, and completely different. They must be different people. But this, these two verses definitively prove that that is false. Our God has been the same God the whole time. It says that the pre-incarnate Spirit of Christ went and made proclamations to the spirits now in prison, those disobedient people that were alive at the time of Noah. The redemptive work of Christ has always been there. As far back as Genesis chapter 6, toward the beginning, God has always been patient with his people. And by his people, I mean the whole human race. God has always been patient with us. And God has been focused on redeeming us by giving us an out from inevitable destruction. Certainly we can see that in the case of the flood. And he was, at that, he was doing that same work during the time of the flood by sending Jesus to proclaim to those spirits that are now in prison. Since of course they are now in prison, we understand that they refused that message, but Christ preaching in the days of Noah, perhaps through Noah in spirit during the construction of the ark, proves that God has been patient as far back as Genesis. And if God was not a patient God, would he have sent his son to die for our sins? If God didn't want us to have an opportunity to be drawn to him, would he have been interested in giving us an opportunity to be saved from the destruction that comes for all of us at death if we live in sin? Would God have been interested in all in our well-being if he didn't love us and he wasn't patient with us? Would he have even given us an opportunity to be baptized? Certainly not. But time and time again throughout all of scripture, God proved that he is patient with his people and he wants us to have a chance to be saved. And that's what baptism is for us. The same way that God instructed Noah to build the ark so that his family could be saved, we have that opportunity today in baptism. Noah was delivered by, a, by water to a new world and we can be too delivered into salvation, a whole new chance through the sacrifice of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says that Noah condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness because he obeyed God by faith. We can make that same decision to condemn the world to a faith that is different than our own today by being baptized. When you and I made the choice to be baptized, we look at the world and the lost and we know where they're going and we decide that we want something different for ourselves. And that's the right choice. We don't want to suffer and die with the lost. We want to take the opportunity that God has given us to seize the opportunity that God has given us to be saved, to have salvation, and to escape the destruction that's coming for us all because we are all going to die. And when we die, the only thing that matters is whether or not we've made our our lives right with God. And that should be a source of hope for all of us. It says in verse 21... Corresponding to that, corresponding to the water, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. An appeal to God for a good conscience. I said earlier that I thought it was intentional that Peter said that a good conscience was the means by which we are vindicated in the end. When I was baptized, I remember very specifically thinking that I was going to be super Christian. This was like my, my second chance. I, I have a clean slate. There's no sin on the table for me at all. I have a new opportunity to be a, a perfect person. You know, I'm like 10 years removed from that, and that, that's not what happened. I've made mistakes since then. But that good conscience was exactly the attitude that we all need to have every sin has to be our last. We have to have an unbroken will to do what's right. No desire to sin, no desire to make mistakes, no desire for an out from our suffering because we're so focused on living the way that God wants us to live. The appeal to God that every single person here who's been baptized made at our baptism for a good conscience, a will to do what Jesus wants us to do to make him the king of our lives needs to be the guiding principle of our whole lives. I want to be the best servant that God ever had. I have a clear conscience. I want to be the person that He lived. I want to follow Him as purely as I can. And that's why I'm hopeful. I have hope because Jesus died for my sins and God, patient and merciful as He is, extended the opportunity for me to be saved from anything that happens here on earth. And he made that same offer to every single person in this room and every single person in the world because he is a patient and a loving God. And that is why Christians can be the most hopeful people. Baptism is our appeal to God for a good conscience into Christ's resurrected power. This chapter closes with Peter's discussion of the supreme rule of Jesus. It says that Jesus Christ was resurrected and at the exaltation that happened at his resurrection, he was set at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. There's nowhere higher than heaven and there's nowhere higher in heaven than at the right hand of God. If Jesus is your master, if our hope is in him and in the power that raised him, what is there to worry about? It says that angels, authorities, and powers had all been subjected to him. Everything, everywhere is under Christ our Lord. If you've been baptized and you're holding on to that good conscience upon which you made that appeal at the point of your baptism, then you have nothing to worry about. You have everything to hope in because Christ is supremely Lord, reigns over everything, And that's why Christians can be the most hopeful people in the face of suffering and even in the face of death, because Jesus reigns in his resurrected power. If you have not been living the way that you need to, Christ is not the Lord of your life the way that he should. And the fact that we're all going to die and death is certainly inevitable makes you uncomfortable. We can make that right today you can reaffirm that good conscience, make things right with God, and live the way that you're supposed to live so that you can be one of the most hopeful people here on earth, no matter the circumstances in your life. Or perhaps you're not a Christian. You haven't made that appeal to God on behalf of your good conscience, but you want to do that today. You know that you need that saving power of Christ's resurrection so that you can have hope in the face of the the suffering that is part of this life and the death that comes for all of us. You can do that today as well, baptized into the saving power of his death, burial, and resurrection. Whatever your need may be, please come while together we stand and while we sing the invitation song.